Open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. If you were with us on Good Friday, we walked through the events of Holy Week in Mark's Gospel. This morning we're going to pick things up right where we ended off on Friday, the rest of the story. So you can turn to Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 40. Or sorry, yeah, verse 40. I think it's true for all of us that when there is something that you really enjoy, you want to share that joy with others. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I don't know how, uh, whether someone introduced me to them, but I stumbled across some way the Hardy Boys books. I don't know if anyone read those. I was around grade five or grade six. My church library actually had them, all 55 hardcovers. And I discovered them, and I loved them. I read them all like in a summer. And, uh, and so when I became a father of boys, I thought, oh, I'd love to share that joy, that experience. I, I loved those books, despite the fact maybe that, that the plots are all essentially the same. Joe and Frank get involved in some little case, and it ends up being connected somehow to the, the case that their father, the detective Fenton Hardy, is involved in. And, but but I, I loved them, and so I wanted to share them. So I began to collect Hardy Boys books at, at garage sales at used bookstores, and I still don't have them all, but I started collecting them, and I really, really, really wanted my boys to read them and love them, because I loved them. Uh, as I recall, and maybe I'll be corrected after the service, but as I recall, uh, Calvin was the first and maybe the only one to ever take them off the shelf. He, he began, I think he read uh, the first book and the second book that I had. I don't know that it was one and two. But then he came to the third book, the third book that he read, and things went off the rails. He, he was reading and, and reading, getting close to the end when sort of the plot all unfolds and everything is wrapped up. And, and as he got close to that place in the book, there was no more pages. The used copy that I had was missing the last chapter or so, and so he was left hanging, and that threw him for such a loop. He, he didn't go to the library to look for it. He didn't ask me to track down another one. He just stopped reading them. And so they sit at home on my shelf. I chucked that one, but, but it just never happened. Because you're, you're, left, you're left asking the question, what happens next? What happens next? This morning, we're going to be looking at the last part of Mark's Gospel. And, and I trust... I trust that it, it won't leave us with that same sense of frustration that Calvin experienced, but it, but it will leave us asking that same question. What happens next? In, in fact, I would contend that Mark intended us to ask exactly that question. We're going to pick things up at verse 40 in chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read. Verse 40 to chapter 16, verse 8. Some women were watching from a distance. This is after Jesus has just breathed his last. Still, his lifeless body is on the cross. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I want to do four things with you in the time that we have together. Uh, first, I want to address a, a textual issue that we encounter here at the end of Mark's Gospel. You'll notice there's something that follows verse 8 here. I want to address what's going on there. Second, I want to focus our attention on, introduce us to, if you will, the various characters that we encounter in, in Mark's Gospel and in the, in the telling of these events. Third, I want to reflect with you on the, the utterly shocking and unexpected nature of Christ's resurrection. And then fourth, I want to reflect with you on, on the implications of uh, this event, this story, and Mark's telling of it for our lives today as disciples of Jesus or as those who are, are, are maybe not disciples of Jesus, who are seekers, who are curious. So first, the textual, textual issue. Uh, likely, at least some of you have noticed the, the note that follows verse 8 in Mark's gospel uh, and precedes verses 9 to 20. Uh, and maybe you've wondered about it. It says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Now, we don't have uh, time enough to dive super deeply into this, but I do want to speak to that uh, a little bit this morning. There's a few important things I want to say. First, let me say this. I have a very high view of Scripture. I hope you know that about me. And so everything we're going to say, I believe God's Word is completely trustworthy for life, uh, uh, life and faith. So, so these things, maybe some of this will be new to some of you, but, uh, but rest assured, uh, Scripture is, is reliable. It is trustworthy. Uh, secondly, it is agreed upon by biblical scholars today that the last verse of Mark's Gospel, as we have it, that he wrote is verse 8, okay? So, um, th now there are some who thinks that Mark continued, that he wrote past verse 8, but that that was somehow lost, that we don't have the end of what Mark wrote. Um, much like uh, we don't have everything that, that Paul wrote. Paul, in, in the 1 Corinthians, uh, that's the first letter that we have of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, but it's not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about, hey, I wrote you in my letter. So there is a, a 1 Corinthians before our 1 Corinthians. So we don't have everything. So there'd be some who say, well, there, Mark wrote beyond verse 8, but we just don't have it. It's lost somehow. There are others who would contend, and I'd agree, that, that Mark actually ended at verse 8. 
It's a bit unsettling, which is part of the explanation of why there's something added after that. But, but uh, I'll get to that a little bit in a, in a few minutes. Third, uh, we should know, you should know that in fact there are two alternative, uh, alternative, alternative endings to Mark's gospel. There's the one that is included, verses 9 to 20. There's also a shorter ending that you might see, depending on your Bible, it might show it up in the footnote. But... But scholars agree that both the longer and shorter endings were written by someone other than Mark at a later date. And now, one of the reasons, one of the things that helps us understand this uh, is the fact that there's, there's a significant manuscript tradition. The, the, the first printing press wasn't invented until the 15th century, so scripture was copied out. And we have, we have an amazing array of biblical manuscripts, far better manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other document in history. And in the earliest, what that note says is that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have verses 9 to 20 or the shorter ending. We have manuscripts that end at verse 8. Those are the oldest, most reliable. And then there's other ones that have these other endings. And uh, so why would, would that have been added? Well, because the church, they knew that there was more that happened after verse 8, right? Mark leaves us at the empty tomb without any post-resurrection appearances. And, and I'll explain why I think Mark did that. But the church knew that there was more, and so they added these things that are all true, that are, we, we read elsewhere. Um, but, but there's just this sense that, well, you've you got to say more, Mark. You can't, you can't leave us hanging there. Well, what happened next? And so they said, well, here's what happened next. And so we, we see that. I, I'd be happy to talk about that more uh, w- with you later. But let's leave it there. Let's, let's turn our attention to the characters that we encounter in the text. Remember, Jesus has been arrested. He's been tried, convicted, scourged, and crucified. He, he has just breathed his last. He's dead, lifeless. His corpse hangs on the cross. All, all those who had followed him, for, for all of those who followed him, for his disciples, this is utterly devastating, completely unexpected. They had hoped that Jesus was the redeemer, the, the coming king, that he was going to overthrow Rome, that he was going to reestablish Israel in all its glory. They, they loved him, and, and they had such hopes, and those were dashed. His life is snuffed out on the cross, and with his life go their hopes, their dreams, their expectations. This is completely shocking and unexpected for them. Their world has been utterly shattered. The disciples had all fled from him. They deserted him earlier in fear in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. The 11 disciples, Judas was already gone, the betrayer. They fled from him in fear. Uh, An interesting note, back in chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, we read an odd note that I just want to draw your attention to. I'll read it to you. A young man, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I don't know if you've ever wondered, what's up with that? Jesus is arrested. There's this note in Mark's gospel, only in Mark's gospel, of this young man who's there. They try and grab him too. In such a panic, he runs out of his clothes and flees through the darkness naked. Uh, Many scholars believe that that is, in fact, the author of this gospel. That's John Mark, uh, who's giving a little 
a little, hey, I was there, I fled too. There's just sheer terror for those who follow Jesus. He's been arrested. He's on trial before Rome. And so there's great fear, and they, they desert him. Everyone deserts Jesus. Or so it would seem. In verse 40, we discover that there are, there's a group of women who, who likely not there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they are here at Golgotha. They see Jesus crucified. They watch as he breathes his last Mark introduces us to several of them. The first is Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary would have come from a little fishing town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, a town called Magdala. Uh, we, we know that Mary uh, encountered Jesus at some point in his ministry. She was possessed by seven evil spirits, and Jesus cast out those evil spirits, set her free, transformed her life. She loved Jesus and became a follower of his. So Mary Magdalene is there. She's one of the women. Uh, another one is just called Mary, the mother of James and uh, the, James the Younger and Joseph. Uh, we, we don't know much more about her. Some suggest that it's the mother of Jesus, but we know G- Jesus had a half-brother named James, but, but likely not. It's another woman named Mary. And then Salome. She was the, the wife of Zebedee, the father of the, the sons of thunder. So she's the wife of thunder, Salome. These three women are there. Mark tells us that these women were followers of Jesus too. They had actually played an active role in his ministry in Galilee, providing for him, caring for his needs. We're not told what that all entailed, but they they were followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, ministering to him. Mark goes on and tells us that many other women were there as well, at the cross, witnessing Jesus' execution. Other women who had traveled to Jerusalem from Galilee. At this point in the story, let's leave these women for a moment and turn our attention uh, to another character. We'll come back to the women standing there at the cross, seeing Jesus die. Uh, Mark introduces us to another character, a man named Joseph, uh, from a a village about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, the place of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the council. that He's on the Jewish Sanhedrin, this this body, this ruling uh, group of 71 men, the highest uh, body of authority within Israel at this point while they live under Roman, uh, uh, Roman domination. And Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. Now, we need to understand that, and Mark says he boldly went, and it would have taken some boldness. Because Jesus, we need to remember, Jesus was sentenced to death as a messianic pretender, as one who, who was acclaimed as king. This is Rome saying, and we don't always get this, this is Rome saying, okay, here's the king of the Jews. You think this is a king? There's only one king, and it's not you, it's Caesar. Here's your king dying on a cross. Jesus dies as an insurrectionist. And, and so Joseph goes and asks for the body. Now, now often Roman executions, the, the, the humiliation wasn't done. The, the punishment, if you will, wasn't done when the condemned man died. It was, they, they were often not uh, allowed to be buried. There was this greater humiliation, this loss of dignity, the loss of everything. Bodies were left often to, to rot and, and be eaten by vultures. And, and often they would be given to families, but not in, not in cases of high treason, and that's what Jesus is, is, is killed for. And yet, Joseph of Arimathea, 
a disciple of Jesus, one who had come to put his faith in Jesus, one who was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly at risk to himself. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of this political criminal who's just been put to death by Rome. Great courage, he goes. And Pilate is surprised that Jesus is dead. Victims of crucifixion often lasted for days. Here, six hours later, Jesus is dead. But when he learns that Jesus is indeed dead, he does give the body to Joseph. And Joseph takes the body down, wraps it in cloth, and lays the body of Jesus in a tomb and rolls a stone in front of it. Mark reminds us or notes that two of the women that he introduced earlier were there. They watched what Joseph did. They saw where Joseph left Jesus' lifeless corpse. And then in Mark 16, verse 1, Mark takes us back to the three women he introduced earlier. As soon as the Sabbath is over, that is, because of the Sabbath, they didn't, they didn't do anything, no work on the Sabbath. As soon as the Sabbath is over, they bought spices, uh, they, they bought aromatic oils, and they go to anoint Jesus' corpse. This isn't embalming it. Understand that in a, in a warm climate like Palestine, uh, bodies would decompose very fast, and so you'd put these aromatic oils and spices on a body to help cover the smell of decomposition. They, they buy these, and they're going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And, and what we are about to discover is that the women are going to arrive too late. And not too late because the body is too decomposed already, but too late because the body's not going to be there when they get there. The three women arrive at the tomb, and they, they had anticipated a problem. What are we going to do with this huge stone? But they get there, and the stone's gone, and they go into the tomb, and they are surprised to encounter, uh, Mark tells us, a young man dressed in white. And he speaks these, women, these words to the women. Don't be alarmed. Every time you get that announcement, it's because someone's alarmed. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Imagine their experience. They have been devastated by the death of Christ. They have anticipated for over 24 hours this moment where they can go anoint Jesus' body as a way of honoring him to put these aromatic oils on his body to help with the, the, the smell of decomposition. They get there, the stones move, the body's gone, they encounter this guy in white who says, don't be alarmed, he's alive, he's not dead anymore. The, the angel's message continues, he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Think about all that these women have experienced. Emotionally, just put yourself in their place. The devastation of seeing their friend, their teacher, their rabbi, the one that they loved, uh, arrested, tried, whipped, mocked, nailed to a cross, suffer for hours and hours, die. Now they arrive at the tomb ready to anoint his lifeless corpse and they encounter this angel with this message. I mean, emotionally, what... what goes on in that moment. I want to just share, maybe this will help us grasp something of the emotional whiplash they're experiencing here. One of the greatest pranks that I heard of from someone that I know was when I was in high school, a guy a couple years older, he was the older brother of a guy in my grade, 
growing up in southern Ontario, and he, he went off to Bible school in Manitoba, uh, fell in love, and his girlfriend, I think, might have been engaged at that point, fiance, came to Ontario for a visit. She'd never been there, didn't know anyone, and he went to the airport, picked her up, driving home to Vineland. Now, Dwayne was close friends with a police officer in his church, and so he set this thing up, and he said, hey, like, Brian, how about, you know, I... You, you pull in behind me with flashing lights and I'll try and outrun you and freak her out. And they did this. They're out in Vineland, in, like driving through vineyards and a, a cop pulls in behind them and the lights go on and it's very noticeable and Dwayne says to his girlfriend, fiance, I think I can lose him and he tromps on it. And she's like, what? And, and it goes on for a couple minutes, he pulls over and he's all frustrated and he stops, cop gets out of his car, he takes off again, finally pulls him over. And she's beside herself, not knowing what, who is this guy that I'm with. She's in this strange place, it's dark, night has fallen. Brian takes Dwayne out of the car, back to the cruiser. There for a few minutes, she's just sitting there panicking, not knowing what is going to happen. This is like her world is falling apart, crashing hard. He comes back a few minutes later with a ticket and throws it on her lap in disgust and starts the car. And she looks at it, and it's a fine for $2,000, which this is like 25, 30 years ago. She's like, what? And she flips it over, and it says, ha-ha, enjoy your visit. <laughs> Just imagine that emotional switch. They, they've seen him put to death, buried, they're there to anoint his lifeless corpse, and they encounter this angel who says, he's not dead anymore. What, what do you do in that moment? What, what's going on in your heart? Well, Mark tells us how the women reacted in that instant. He says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. I would contend with many that that's the end of Mark's gospel. Bewildered, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. How in the world can you conclude like this? It's a bit jarring, isn't it? He just leaves his readers hanging. He doesn't recount any post-resurrection appearances, not that he wasn't aware of them, not that they didn't happen. Of course they did. He just tells us that these women who had followed Jesus, who had been devastated by his crucifixion, were there to anoint his lifeless body. They hear this message that he's not dead anymore, he's not here, and they're freaked out and afraid, and they run away and don't say anything to anyone. Little wonder there were people in the early church who said, we, we, we've got to tell them other stuff that happened. And yet Mark, I believe, chose to end his gospel this way, and, and I think he did so for a good reason, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. I just want us to turn our attention thirdly to reflect on the, the shocking and unexpected nature of the, revel, uh, of the resurrection. When we read the conclusion of Mark's gospel, we may, we may be surprised at the reaction of the women. They're told, but, but go and tell the disciples and Peter. And they, they're given this mission to announce what they have just learned. 
And, and they at least initially completely fail in that. They just run away terrified. Not, not really any different than any of the other disciples, right? All the disciples have abandoned and fled Jesus. That Mark ran away naked as he was afraid. So they're all been afraid. Have you ever stopped and asked this point in the story, why are the women so freaked out? Why, why do they just run away and not do what they're told? The reality of the matter is the resurrection was so completely unexpected, so completely shocking. You know, for those of us who've grown up in the church and we've celebrated Easter year after year, like there's a sense in which we can get numb to this. Of course Jesus rose. But think about it. This was, this was not on their radar. When Jesus died, their hopes died with him. They, they were devastated. Their, their world was flipped upside down. Think about Easter for a moment in our culture, how we celebrate it. Easter, in our, in our culture, it's, it's about bunnies and eggs and chocolate. But it's celebrated in spring. I mean, I, I can see snow from where I am. Generally, it's celebrated in the time of spring when we are anticipating, at least, grass turning from brown to green, flowers coming up, trees producing buds that will burst into leaves. It's this time when we, we hear and think of renewal and rebirth and, 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 and everything after a long, cold winter, this, uh, this time of, of life and vibrancy. All around us, we anticipate that in the spring. But that's not resurrection. Resurrection is about a dead person not being dead anymore. And that, that doesn't happen. We, we expect snow to melt eventually. We expect flowers to bloom. We expect trees to bud and, and have leaves come out. But nobody expects a dead person to not be dead anymore. Jesus was dead. The women saw him die. They saw him buried. It was over. And then they encounter this angel who says, he's not dead anymore. If you've ever gone to Hallmark looking for Easter cards, I would contend that probably most of them are covered with images of spring. Eggs, bunnies, flowers, and bright, happy, with, with happy Easter. May you enjoy the peace of the season. Imagine, imagine going and finding an Easter card that reflects this story. On the front is a picture of three women with their skirts hiked up and they are running for all their worth out of a graveyard. And then you open it and in nice frilly font, it says, trembling and bewildered, they fled because they were afraid. Happy Easter. I mean, that's the story. That's the story that we have here. That's the picture that Mark paints for us. The resurrection was so completely unexpected, so shocking that at least initially the women are stunned and trembling and afraid, and they run away like everyone else has run away. They run away and they say nothing. So as we turn fourthly to think about what are the implications of this story for our lives, I want to add, what, is, what does it mean? There are several key things that I want to highlight for you. First, I want to highlight the fact that all of Jesus' followers, the, the 11 and others failed. They, they, they fled. They abandoned Jesus. They left him in his time of need. 
They, they failed to follow Jesus on his road to the cross. Jesus says in, in the gospel, in the middle of Mark chapter 8, he says, uh, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And yet here in Mark's gospel, every one of Jesus' followers uh, bail on him. They run away, they flee. And even the women who stayed there and watched Jesus die here, at the end they get this commission, go and tell, and they, they run away and say nothing. Mark, the author of this gospel, runs away naked. I want us to note that. And secondly, I want you to see, I want you to hear the amazing note of grace. The angel says, but go tell his disciples. Go tell his disciples that he'll meet you. The ones who abandoned him, the ones who fled, the ones who ran away in his moment of need, go tell them, go tell his disciples and Peter. Remember Peter? Peter, Peter had failed amazingly. Like, Peter didn't just run away, but when they said, hey, you, you were with Jesus, Peter said, I don't even know the man. Like, he denied knowing him three times. So the message here is go tell the disciples and Peter. Th those words drip with grace. They, they drip with grace. Th the disciples are not disqualified because of their failure. Isn't that amazing? We're not disqualified because of our failure. I think God's concern for Peter that he not wrestle with worry about his failure is so significant. This, this message from the Lord through this angel is, go tell the disciples and Peter, include him. Know that he's a part of this too. There is a grace, abundant grace. There is grace sufficient no matter how you've failed, no, no matter how spectacularly you've failed. And third, let's come back to Mark's unusual conclusion. Why end your story like this? Why, why, would, why would Mark end it with the women running away from the tomb and we as readers are left standing there going, what? What happens next? And, and I would contend that that's exactly where Mark wants us to be. Mark wrote most likely to, to believers in Rome to believers who couldn't go and look at an empty tomb, to believers who never, never had the privilege of encountering the resurrected Christ. He, he tells this story this way so that we will wrestle with the undoneness of Mark's story because, because it needs to dawn on us that the rest of the story, the next step is for you and I. We're standing there at the empty tomb. We've just heard the message that, that the one who was dead is not dead anymore. And so we're left to ask, what, what will you do? What will I do? What will we do with the truth of an empty tomb? What will we do with the announcement that Jesus who died is not dead anymore? What will we do? What will the next part of the story look like? I believe Mark ended his gospel like this so that we would understand the undoneness of this story and that we are invited into it. You and I are called to live as ambassadors of Christ, 
to proclaim the hope that is found in the resurrected one to a lost and dying world. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Go and tell the world. For any who are with us this morning who, who don't know Jesus, who haven't put their faith in Jesus, I want to challenge you to wrestle with this message of the empty tomb. The reality is that Jesus' disciples who had all run away in fear and hid, something happened because within days they were boldly proclaiming that their hope was in Jesus, that the one who had been killed by Rome was alive and their, their lives were turned upside down and within a few years they turned the Roman Empire upside down. And, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you need to come up with some explanation for that. So I challenge you to think, to consider, to consider the empty tomb. And for those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted Jesus, I, I want to ask the question that I believe John Mark wants, wanted us to ask his readers, and that, that is what happens next. What, what will you and I do? What will the next part of the story be? As we are called to go and proclaim the hope that is found in Jesus, to proclaim the truth of an empty tomb, that Jesus has conquered sin, that Jesus has conquered death, that, that there is hope in Jesus. That's the call. That's the response that we are invited into. My prayer is that we would lean in, that every one of us would, would be, find ourselves standing there in our mind's eye, standing before an empty tomb, and that we would invite Jesus to fill us with his spirit, to fill us with boldness, that we would go, and that we would proclaim the hope of Christ, the resurrected one. Amen.